there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in entrepreneurship, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is an entrepreneur who has founded two global lifestyle brands, despite the fact that she had no clue what business was about or finance or fashion for that matter. She had no background or training in that and instead studied to become a diplomat in China the country of her birth. But before I introduce you to the immensely talented Mei Xu, or Xu Mei, which is the way that you would be known back home, of course, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an incredible insight into the episodes and the professionals that we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to do. All you have to do is go to the Time for Coffee website at time the number four coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Mei Xu, a Chinese American entrepreneur, business leader, and the founder of two global lifestyle brands, Bliss Living Home, a culturally inspired luxury home textiles company, and Chesapeake Bay Candle, a wellness-inspired home fragrance company. May is also the founder of Mayshu.com, an online community and marketplace for women entrepreneurs. May established Chesapeake Bay Candle back in 1994 and grew it into a global manufacturer of home fragrance products that are sold at major U.S. retailers, including Target, Kohl's, Bed Bath & Beyond, and on Amazon.com, where it's enjoyed by millions of people around the world. She also sold the company in 2017. 欢迎来到我的节目 Time for coffee 很高兴有你你喝咖啡的够了吗我已经喝了两杯了太好了 <laughs> I want to welcome you to Time for Coffee I have never had the pleasure of actually interview I've interviewed people who speak Chinese but not who are Chinese so it's a little intimidating for me <laughs> but I am so thrilled to have you on Time for Coffee May Thank you for inviting me The idea of time for coffee is perfect. Well, before we get into something else that's perfect, into what you do now with Bliss Living Home and Meishu.com and how you built Chesapeake Bay Candle Company, I want to share with our young listeners how you and I met because I want them to know that even when you are in your 50s as I am today and on your fourth career, networking is something that never stops. It goes on and on. And there I was one day walking my dog in my neighborhood about 10 minutes from where you live, May. And I was doing what I love to do on a beautiful day. And I was binging on podcasts. And I listened to a former colleague of mine, Guy Raz, who hosts How I Built This. And I'm listening to him talk to this very articulate, very accomplished, clearly very successful entrepreneur named Mei Xu. I remember thinking because I lived in China, I studied Mandarin, Mei Xu is not a common name. It's not like Mei Wang or Mei Zhang or something like that, like Smith or Brown would be in this country. And I was like, I 
seem to remember seeing a May shoe on the listserv at my son's school, like for their ski trips or things that they've been on. And so I shot you an email saying, I don't know if you're the (laughs) same person. And you might have responded and said, no, I'm not. But you were. You are exactly the mother of a child who's at the same school that my son goes to. Exactly. Exactly. And I think they are going to go skiing again this year together. Wouldn't that be nice? So rather than jumping into what you're doing right now today, because truly one business has flowed into the next and you've evolved as you have moved from one business to the next. I thought maybe we could rewind the clock and set it to 1989 when you graduated from the Beijing Foreign Studies University. And we should also let our listeners know that when you were 12, you were selected to attend a very prestigious language school. It was an immersion boarding school in China run by the Chinese government. And it was designed to be a pipeline to train China's diplomats for the Foreign Service. And when you graduated in 1989, it's hard to imagine it's 30 years ago, that was also when thousands of Chinese students and Chinese people took to the streets of Tiananmen Square in the heart of Beijing, of China's capital, to protest against the government. And so instead, of entering the Chinese diplomatic corps, which you had been training to do since you were 12. Where did you end up? I ended up in a warehouse for minerals and export in northern China. It is called Dalian. It's a city very much, it's a cold city. And we went in September. Even though it's September, it's already, you need to wear double jackets and sweaters. Not only is it a warehouse, it's also in a suburb. When I say suburb in China, it's not like Bethesda or Arlington. It's really very quiet. I have one boss, which is a guy that smoke, chain smoke the whole day. And basically my job is having a clipboard. And every day there's a truck that comes pick up the load to go to the shipyard All I have to do is to cross it on my clipboard, one load, and then in the afternoon, another load. That would have been a whole year of my life, doing nothing but check off two loads of pickup every day. And we should let our listeners know that this was called re-education. It's re-education because the idea is that the students have been causing a lot of headaches, moving them away from the center of the power or the demonstration so that they can be re-educated by workers, soldiers, farmers, will give them some appreciation of the life that they are having. And when they're, you know, educated in a year, they will return to their job that was assigned before. Yeah. This is very common in modern Chinese history ever since Mao Zedong took power in China in 1949. The way that you deal with intellectuals, the way that you deal with troublemakers, right? So even though you weren't protesting in Tiananmen Square and your classmates most probably weren't, you were still seen as a threat to the Chinese Communist Party. So you were sent out for re-education. So then what happened? You were in this incredibly menial, boring job that could have been your life for who knows how long. And you quit. I quit, which is the very unthinkable thing to do. Because when you quit from the government diplomatic sort of corp, you are then abandoned 
your career to be a diplomat. So I thought through this. The challenge for me is not just uh, it's a mundane, it's a manual labor, it's isolated. It's the fact that for the first time in my life since 12, I would not be able to continuously practice speaking English. And you are the expert of language yourself, speaking Chinese for a long time. And imagine one year, not only are you not speaking with the professionals, you're not able to listen, you're not able to read, or most of the time you're not able to have a you know conversation with a native speaker. That would be detrimental to your language background and to me, it's just unthinkable. Since 12, I was probably, let me see, I was 22 at that time. So for, for 10 years, I have nonstop education in an immersion manner, which means half the day was usually taught in Chinese and the rest of the classes are all in English. It's very, uh, you know, progressive to think in 1979 to have immersion language education by native speakers and be able to use American curriculum and be able to watch movies such as Godfather, Kramer's versus Kramer. <laughs> Those were very good movies, but for us at 13 or 14, we don't even have censorship at that time. We got to watch Godfather at 14. I remember reading the book and I was thinking, this is kind of interesting that we're allowed to watch and read pretty, you know, pretty adult content. So at that time, their goal is to make sure that China has a crop of diplomats that really have a deep understanding, not only of the language, but the culture, the history, the 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 relationships, and so that they can speak very confidently in the world in the world stage. They're not going to be not understood. They're also going to really understand the details, or even if we're watching a game, we understand what that slam means or what that reference to a pop culture song means. And that takes time. And they decided 12 is the right age to get started. So there you were, 1990, I guess at this point. Yep. And you quit. I quit. And you and your new husband mm -hmm. decide you're going to come to the U.S., which you were finally able to do in 1991. It took you a while. You moved to Annapolis, Maryland, which is, for those who may not know American geography, very close to the Chesapeake Bay. Exactly. And you went to graduate school at the University of Maryland to become a journalist. Well, actually, it's that is a confusing uh, element. When I was working for the World Bank, which I did since uh, second year in college, I happened to have a sociology professor whose husband was the first chief of mission for the World Bank. And one day I went to have dinner in her house and her husband said, what are you doing still trying to learn English? You should try to help us because we have so many World Bank officers and a lot of consultants from around the world. Our problem is no one understands English enough where we need to invest. Why don't you come and translate for us? So I became an interpreter and translator for missions for the World Bank since the second year. And I basically just took final exams and I skipped all the classes because my teacher said you could. And that's one of the reasons why I was going to study mass communication. Because during those missions, what I really learned is that sometimes the World Bank has very good goals using the lenses of Western country and they think people need XYZ when the people need ABC. The cultural differences and the societal changes presented a lot of challenges for collaboration. And my thought was to really help 
communications on both sides. That's why I signed up to do mass communication. And mass communication at that time in the Mar- University of Maryland is housed under journalism school. Gotcha. So you finish your degree. As you said, you hope to work at the World Bank when you graduated. But there goes whatever you want to call misfortune or fortune again. There's a global recession in the early 1990s, which meant there was a hiring freeze at the bank. And suddenly your next career track is closed to you. Exactly. I'm very unfortunate in the sense that every year I graduate, something really big happens. I'm telling you. And I think that's probably the the hidden agenda is so that I could start something very, very unusual and dramatic. No one would blame you back then for sure for thinking that you had a dark cloud over your head. I don't know if your friends or family said, oh my God, do you have bad luck? So here you go. You graduate, you have your master's. You're not going to work at the World Bank. Did you have a plan B? I really don't. Uh, Remember, I already had no potential of being hired with a good job in China. And I really like the idea of trying to see what else is out there for me. Because for the first time in my life, I actually started to worry about money a little bit, worry about finding a sustainable way to support myself. So I did find a job in New York, which means I have to commute between Washington, D.C. and New York weekly. I spend weekdays in, fortunately, they put me in a hotel near Bloomingdale's. And I was able to really do my window shopping. And I was like a bird out of the cage because before I left China, the retail industry is still very government controlled. There's probably two department stores in the entire Beijing. Yoyishangdian, <laughs> the friendship hotel. Yoyishangdian is the only one that carries foreign product. So to me, you can imagine you, you were there. You know exactly how I feel if you are thrown into a Bloomingdale. There could be worse things happen to me. You had died and gone to heaven. <laughs> yes. So you have this job working for a high-tech medical company in New York that exported equipment to China. Right. It's two very inspiring women, actually. Both of them speak Chinese. They're Yale graduate, and they decided to make their fortune in China where no Americans have gone. They actually started their business in Beijing, not in the United States. So they started this medical export business and they basically export, you know, very high-end GE, MRI machines or Accuson ultrasonic machines, space lab bed that can be up and down. And that was when China was really hungry for high-tech medical equipment. And I was there as their export assistant manager dealing with the brands. So tell us about the moment when you were in Bloomingdale's that you had what you've described as your aha moment? Well, I was always fascinated with the fashion floor, which is the second floor. You see this beautiful designs of, you know, usually black, very well tailored, Donna Karen, Kevin Klein, and they're sharp. And they have menswear influences with the material, but the cut is definitely very feminine. And the woman wearing them, you know, you instantly see that they look very elegant, but very modern. And then you go up to the third floor and all the way to the eighth floor, that's home. And when you are there, it's as if you're going back to 
30s and 40s, where the products are very mundane and it's a little old school with very ornate gilded look. The scrolls of the leg of the, the tables, the sofa has prints, very small floral prints like Laurel Ashley's prints. And you just imagine who would dress this way and then go back to the home as if it's the grandma's home. You know, there has to be a more contemporary, more streamlined furniture and home that is equally speak to the taste of those women. So I talk a lot to my ex-husband who was, remember, working in DC area. And at some point, I don't think it's a aha moment, but he said, I think you are really frustrated working in a field that you're not excited about. Why don't we just quit our jobs and start a new business? So how did you land on candles? It was actually a market research. So remember in the 1980s and 1990s is where state-owned foreign trade business in China is booming. And unlike what everybody thought, those of us who are trained in diplomacy did not all end up going to diplomacy. Some of them were immediately took over by the foreign trade companies because they need equal amount of expertise in culture, in language, in finance, and understand how to deal in the business world with good background language. So a lot of my friends work for state-owned foreign trade companies for fashion, for home, for heavy metals. And I just asked them, hey guys, I'm here. What do you think is a great idea? So I was offered to sell railway metals. <laughs> I was offered to sell chemicals. And I said, I'm not excited about any of those products. If I'm not excited and there's nothing I can do about the product, I'm not going to do it. It has to be something I love. But I also made a very clear decision at that time not to go to fashion. Because I see that there's designers already and who am I to start going into fashion if I'm not going to have my mark on design? But home is a whole different case. There is no brand that is recognizable in home. There may be a few, but they are not updated. They're not fresh. They're not modern. They're just there because somehow they have you know, become a staple. And then there are a lot of sort of void in the design element. So that's why we say, give me some home products. So I was offered, you know, fake trees, you know, those silk trees that never die. I was offered a whole line of that. I was offered glassware and sea cushions and candles. So I brought all of them to a trade show. And that's why I still say, if you go to a trade show today, you would still be able to find out what works. And that trade show is in North Carolina, and I went there in September, the Charlotte gift show. And right there, the answer is very clear. 90% of our orders went into candles. And not just 90%. Didn't it end up being something like $90,000 worth? Yeah, it's a huge amount of orders for a small booth of 10 by 10 in a regional show. And we did more. We shipped after the first order went to the customers. Those are little mom and pop stores. They did very well. So they reordered and reordered. Even though we went into business in September of 1994, guess how much business we did that year for five months, four months? How much? $500,000. And we were profitable from the first year. It's incredible that that product 
Of course, we were very, very hardworking. I was the sales lady. I was the secretary. I was the assistant on the phone. And I ship in the back too. We have a, a very humble garage slash office in the industrial park in Laurel, Maryland, not far from College Park, very close to the regional office of UPS. And every day we are the last to drop all the shipments. Like those people now working out of their home and you were making candles in your house. We later, so that's, there's a little story there. Okay. So the candles we got from China, they're not fragrant. They're holiday candles with a lot of designs of Christmas trees. And it's a glow candle that has beautiful print on the outside. When you burn them, it glows like stained glass. And we were so happy we find it. And we went back into the New York gift show in February. And that was when we realized it's not uh, the it because there's no orders. There's probably like a four five hundred dollar order here and there, but it's nothing compared with September. And we quickly realized people don't need that candle during the rest of the year. They buy that as a gift and they don't even burn them. And that's when we have some time. We shopped around and we realized there's Yankee candle. There's candle light. There's candles that are fragrant. That's why people buy them, because they burn them for fragrance, and we have nothing compared with them. So I can imagine some of our listeners are thinking right now, okay, how did you go to finding factories in China to mass produce and manufacture those sophisticated candles? Was it because of your network? Well, actually, they say no. Nobody wants to make the candles. They don't even know how to make it. Remember, China was never a place where they have a nice fragrance industry. They have some flavor business, which is for food. Fragrance candles was not started and was not there when I started. So when I told people, I'm going to send fragrance oils from the U.S. and make them put it in the candles, the first thing they ask is, how much do you buy? And I told them how much I'm buying. For one container, 20-foot containers, probably 10,000 candles, I want 50 different varieties, you know, 50 different fragrance level. And they say, forget it. We're not doing it. We only work with Walmart and the, the likes. We don't work with people that are so small like you because it's not productive. So, and we don't know what you're talking about. Fragrance, we're going to buy fragrance from, from the U.S. and then we put it back and we ship it back to the U.S. No, we're never going to do that. So I was really devastated. The samples I made was beautiful in my basement. I showed it to a lot of stores such as Bloomingdale's and Nordstrom. Immediately, they want to buy it. There's nothing like that. The colors are very updated. It's a beautiful, bright colors with two fragrances that I mix them at home. So unlike my competitor, which are very established, but very traditional, I would put a vanilla with lavender or a mint with watermelon. So you're the one who started that. (laughs) (laughs) I said, to hell with just mulberry candles and pine candles. I think there's something else that we can do. And obviously, I have to do something different just so that people, you know, started to realize there's more to what they already buy. And I didn't even make them in a jar. I make them in a pillar candle. So it's very decorative. It has a snowflake texture. The buyers love It's really what they lack in the contemporary area for their home. So how did you crack the code in China? Um, So I was complaining to my sister, who is trained as a mathematic genius and turned into a computer scientist. And she just said, okay, I'll set up a factory for you. I said, what? You're going to quit your job as well? And your husband, who's a professor of mathematics in Zhejiang University, she said, yeah, you have quit your job. So I'm going to quit mine. 
That's what, how it all started. A family of candle makers. <laughs> Don't even ask me how my parents think about these two crazy daughters of theirs. Well, what did they say? They say, you better know what you're doing because we educated you to become scientists and diplomats. And what do we got? Two candle makers. They don't even know what you do with candles because in China, they don't burn candles. That's when you don't have power and you burn some white, you know, candles. And then as soon as the light come back, you, you blow it out. It reminds them of the long history of suffering. So as I listen to you tell this story, May, what is coming to the surface for me is the importance of the network that you create, starting from when you're a young person. Obviously, you've got your family, you've got your friends, but look how you tapped into your network of classmates. Mm -hmm. Had it not been for them, Exactly. What would you have done? Nothing. I would say not only classmates, later on in my life, you also tap into your neighbors. I tap into my friends from another school of my older son. More and more, I think people realize that this is incredibly important to turn into your network for advice, for support, for opportunities, as well as for growth. Because there's so much similarity in, in the opinions or in the experience of you that it's already a trust factor that I think it's, you know, my sister trusts me that whatever I'm doing, I'm going to try my best. And when I have that trust in a vendor who doesn't care how small the first order was, and even now, if I say, obviously, I'm not in the candle business, but even now I say pig is going to be big next year as a motif, make some candles that look like pig. She'll trust me because I've never failed in those things. And she kind of look at me as someone that even if it failed, I'm going to find a place I can sell those candles that look like <laughs> pig. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's that kind of, uh, I'm not going to leave her hanging there. Yes. So it's also important to follow up. And yes. maintain the trust right. that you have with your various colleagues and friends and in network. your network. I mean, that that is why I feel there's a trust factor because people know where to find you. And you know, you know that there is a comfort level that whatever does not work, they'll give you another chance. So let's move to Bliss Living Home. Why and when? Did that come into being? And for our listeners, we should tell them that Bliss Living is a culturally inspired luxury home textiles company. Bliss Living come about because both my sister and I felt really bad for the employees she had in Hangzhou. In 2006, we moved our factory out of Hangzhou and part of it to Vietnam because anti-dumping duty for Chinese-made candles rise to 106%. Effectively shut that whole country down for manufacturing. Even though our product has never been low-priced, many are. And as a matter of fact, because China is a non-market economy, it means if one company has dumped product, every company in the country have to be subject to that duty. If you're, let's say, Europe, if you're Italy, if one company is dumping shoes, for example, it's only that company that gets the anti-dumping duty because it's considered a market economy. So because of that, we have over 2,000 staff in Hangzhou that has started with us when we built the factory in two, uh, 1995. So they have moved, as you recall, the great migration out of countryside. They would bring their 
family and then their brothers. And eventually, because they have young children, they bring their parents to our factory. And we usually build homes for them, you know, apartment buildings. And now we have 2,000 people that basically will have to find another job. And not only them, we probably support around 10,000 people from the children's to the, the parents. But they are also very dedicated and they they really grow with the company. So one of the ideas I have with my sister is maybe there's something else that we can let their background become another skill set that can lend them a job. So there's nothing we can do immediately. But one of my thought was, and that was a little bit of a miscalculation, to be honest with you, was home textile because I'm always looking for gap. And the gap I felt in bedding is that everything is pretty mundane. You know, it's usually white, it's usually ivory and some some kind of color. And the prints or whatever it has is very Laurel Ash. And I said, why don't we make some impressive modern art on the bedding that is a expression of where you have traveled. So if you go online, you can see that all the collections have 250 count with satin finish, so very soft. But on top of that, none of the design is a solid color per se. We have travel-inspired designs that are cropped. So instead of repeating in a row to print the design, it's usually engineered printing, which is more demanding. But then it's an image that is like a painting. We have collections that are very large scale printing of a flower or continuation of medallions. One of our most successful collection comes from my trip to Shangri-La in the border of Yunnan and Xizang. It's a beautiful uh, color story inspired by the bells in the Buddhist temple, the robe of the monks. And it's just juxtaposed in a way that brings you to that area. And our story also is about styling it with great texture of pillows and throws so that we sell the whole story. And it was really becoming the catalog. Remember those are days you still print, print catalogs? My catalog almost land always at the first Monday meetings of every single store. It was always part of a conversation by the Target Home, Neiman Marcus, Bloomingdale. They love that look because it's modern, but it's global. And it was that concept that is no one has done that. And we were really picked up by all the all the stores. Nordstrom even worked with us for a very long time. My takeaway from what you've just shared is that you hit a problem with your business in terms of the tariffs that China was putting into or that were put into place on Chinese exports mm-hmm. on candles. Right. So you and your sister were worried about the 2,000 employees you had in China and their family members, the right. thousands of others. And so you pivoted your company right. to help your employees, really. Right. Yes. And that's how you grew Bliss Living Home. Yes. Was out of that. So it was what could for some have been the end of the road. You right. would have said, well, we have to shut down the factory in China and we're just right. going to be working in Vietnam. Right. But instead, your commitment to the community. They are my friends. I've known them for more than 10 years. They supported us and they grow the brand as what it is uh, today because of their hard work. So it's my family. It's not different than my family. It's just that 
they are much bigger families now. It's, and by the way, there are a lot of relationships, right? A lot of young men and women started there and they got married. So can you imagine they really are three generations kind of engaged in our work? And I don't know if you realize the culture is such that they have a lot of celebrations, right? And they have a lot of performances that put together by people that have talent. So you get to know them really well. So before we move into the standard questions that Mm -hmm. I try to ask all of my guests, I would love to give you an opportunity to share with our young listeners what Meishu.com is, why you created it, and what you are building. Meishu.com is a women-centric community that is on the e, you know, electronic format uh, on website where we are trying to create a community of women doers, women consumers, so that we can nurture young or new women entrepreneurs in the consumer business. So we're connecting consumers with uh, women businesses in a way that is thoughtful, that is going to give consumers an experience because those are women around the world. It's not just uh, American, but they could be in Italy, they could be in South Korea, they could be in um, Brazil one day, they could be in Africa. And we want to support their entrepreneurship by giving them a lot of training and also let some of our mentors support them. And women can use their purse to support each other. Fantastic. May, what advice do you have for our young listeners who may want to become entrepreneurs, especially the young women who may still be in college right now, who are afraid that they may have the wrong major or they haven't taken the right classes? What could or should they be studying or doing as a part-time job or an extracurricular to help better position them for success as entrepreneurs or in another industry? I think service industry is such a great way to help you have an insight of consumers. No matter what we do, at the end of the day, our understanding of the consumers and the deeper connection with them is always going to stand out if you are interested in in a career in consumer product. Another interesting thing that I always say that at school, don't forget to get involved is creative writing, math. And a foreign language, because a lot of it comes to how you want to compete in a global place. I always feel very comfortable having a global perspective because I worked from a very young age with a global team of consultants at the World Bank. So I'm very comfortable thinking that I could source boots from Italy, really good shoes from Spain, beautiful beachwear from Brazil, even some jewelries from Rwanda, because that's the way I am. I'm very open-minded about where I can find the next item. And it's because of my foreign language background. It doesn't even have to be English because that allows you to understand in the end, we are all humans. Humanity is what brings us all together. And you just have to give yourself some creative training, language, math, which I continually think is really lacking in many of our day-to-day training, which by the way, when you go to work, it becomes harder to actually learn math. It's far easier at school. So much is far easier at school. What other qualities do you think are important for young people to cultivate 
I'm thinking about you with your network in school. What other things have you drawn upon in your life that have helped you to build successful businesses? I would say curiosity and the lifetime of learning. That attitude will not let you shut down when there's challenges or obstacles. And immediately following that, it's a sense that you don't give up. I know it's very easy to give up. And I know that just before you give up, you almost feel you can't possibly hold on any longer. It's like exercise, right? This morning, I was asked to hold my plank for 10 more seconds. And I think... I'm going to kick that man who said that. It's easy for him to say it. I can't hold on to another 10 seconds. But guess what? After the eighth second, you know you can do. And every day you can prolong it to maybe 15 seconds next and then 20 seconds by the end of this week. I might be even looking at 60 seconds. This is 吃苦。吃苦难了. This is the ability to eat bitterness. Eat and tolerate bitterness. And then turn it into a challenge for yourself and your body can take it, not immediately, but little by little. I mean, we are talking about the ability for strength training here, but we're talking about your mindset. Your mindset, your mental, your mental toughness to weather. I mean, it's a given. Life is not an easy walk. If anybody born thinking everything will, will go right, it's not the right mindset. In my view, if you just say 2020, but you have a mindset that every failure will be followed by success, that's how I think. Maybe I'm just a person with a glass half full all the time. Can you share a time in your professional life, May, when you really ate bitterness, when you really struggled, and most importantly, how you got through to the other side and a lesson that you learned in the process? Well, I remember in New York when we were uh, on the heel of a very big successful show in Charlotte in 1994. And in early 95, we went to New York with very good stocked booth. We paid a lot of money there and we don't have orders. I mean, we thought it was a dream that we had such a good business. And now we're going to be dealing with the cold reality. And I remember it was a very cold day in February. It was snowing. And literally, you feel once again... Just like every time I graduate, this is what I have to deal with. And and that moment was not very long, but I remember it. It's very silent. It's almost like everything that has been bustling is quiet and you have yourself to deal with. And the self is a little lost, but it's not as big as when I was alone in the countryside of Dalian because I know I've already tasted success. I've already tasted what it feels like when you bring something that people need. It's just a matter of finding it again. And we went to Germany immediately into a very large trade show called Ambiente. It's in Frankfurt. It's the Europeans' answer to consumer product show. And right there, I found the answer, which is in Europe, because of the influences of Northern European countries, such as Sweden and Denmark, the contemporary, very simple, very streamlined design is right there in the middle of winter. You see beautiful colors, bright yellow, bright neon green and cropped motifs. The lifestyle that I have always thought exists actually was right in front of me. And it was reinforcing what I think is missing in the U.S. consumer business. And that's where you feel that 
you were probably right, and you should listen to yourself a little bit more. So we used a、uh, Campbell soup can to make the candles that later on become Chesapeake Bay candle with bright colors, with multi notes fragrances, and that's where we brought those samples to Bloomingdale. We brought those samples to Nordstrom's buying offices, and they bought right on the spot. So, final time for coffee question: If you could go back to college, whether at Beijing Foreign Studies University or another place, and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I think core curriculum is actually helpful. It gives you the well-rounded education. Even then, I always feel that. I could have used maybe even more art history or a little bit more math, but in general, I think open yourselves to another culture, being able to allow yourself to get lost and find your way around the different subject. I was actually learning very curiously. I was an American studies major at my undergraduate. I would never think that something like that is going to be my major, but. I decided that of the choices, it's finance and computer science. You know, as a second major, other than English, I chose American study. And how ironic it was that I could have gone to Australia, could have gone to Britain. I ended up here in Washington, and I never moved since then. So there must be some sort of serendipity there. May, thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I wish you. Continued success with Meishu dot com, with Bliss Living Home, and in everything that you decide to put your mind to. Thank you, and all the audiences. It's a wonderful way to connect, particularly those that will get your advice as they are young. I wish I had that also. So, thank you for what you do. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you. Always have time to grab coffee, twenty four seven, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you: remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.